Your stories don't define you. How you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker of Elkins Consulting. Many of my clients reach out to me because they're in transition. Their children are hitting milestone ages. They want more from their work. They're hitting a big number birthday. And they want to develop clarity about their natural strengths, what their next adventure might look like. In this series, you'll hear me ask my guests questions to dig deeply into the stories that shaped their lives, stories that uncover patterns and may unveil insights into dissatisfaction and also where their strengths lie and where they found and continue to find joy. This podcast's intention is to have listeners think of their own related stories and how they tell them, discovering the internal messages that are limiting their success and discovering how to shift their stories so they become positive life lessons to move them forward. If you're curious about what it would be like to work with me, visit elkinsconsulting.com and schedule a one-time 90-minute StrengthsFinder session. Well, yesterday, I was just taking a few minutes to surf on LinkedIn, and I found some of the work that my guest that's going to be highlighted today put out there. And you are in for such a treat, listeners. I'm introducing Lindsay Pollock to Your Stories Don't Define You, How You Tell Them Well, and I'm so eager to get started in this conversation. Thanks for joining me. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, I got your name from one of our mutual friends, and um, she was just surprised that we hadn't met already. And I think it was Sarah Blewett. Is that correct? No? I don't know. For some reason, I was thinking it was Sarah Blewett because I noticed in your LinkedIn profile that you you have been involved with um, veteran re-entry into the workforce and recruitment and setting them up so that they can be successful in the workforce after time in the military. And that's my friend, Sarah Blewett, that has been her focus for a while too. So of course that immediately caught my attention. I'm a big believer in um, that ability for somebody to be able to take the skills that they've learned in one place and, and quickly and effectively apply them in other areas of their lives. So thank you for your work in that area. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm on the board of an organization, <clears throat> excuse me, called Four Block, um, and we provide veteran career readiness services all around the country. So Four Block is a great organization, and thanks for your support. Yes, and just so our listeners know, we will put a link to Four Block in the blog post associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com, so you can go and check out what they're doing with that nonprofit. I always start with these conversations by asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people might not know about them. And I do that to give our listeners context outside of what we might talk about during this discussion, because I feel like it gives people a much better view of how complex people are so we don't get frozen in time based on one thing we say. So what do you think? Do you have something you can share with us? I do. I'm going to give a fun one and a more serious one because I couldn't decide. My fun one is during the pandemic, I got very into the Netflix show about Formula One racing called Drive to Survive and absolutely became obsessed with it. So bizarrely, I now am really interested in Formula One racing, which is super fun and and silly. Um, And that's my (laughs) fun one, which you would not expect if you met me, my little Upper West Side Jewish girl uh, who, you know, doesn't even like to drive a car. Um, That's my fun one. And my more serious one is actually something I've gotten really vocal talking about during the pandemic, which I had never talked about before, which is that I have um, had anxiety for my whole life. 
And I have treated it with therapy and medication and a variety of programs, but I never, ever, 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 ever talked about it professionally. And since the pandemic, I've opened up a lot more about it in interviews and in my latest book. And so I feel really compelled to tell people that I have had a lot of success and I'm really proud of where I am, but I have done it with uh, mental health conditions. So that's my other fact. Wow. I actually did know a little bit about that because I've been reading up. I, I, I do my little Google stalking before I interview anyone. Just so I know the the beauty that is the complexity of humanity. Um, and and I love that you share that. And I love that you are being more vocal about it because, of course, so many people struggle with anxiety, depression, other other issues, ADHD. And they're so hesitant to share that because it has come with such a stigma. And yet, the more we talk about it, it seems the more people are more comfortable with talking about it. And people in companies aren't so resistant to um, looking at those different abilities and different sensitivities as potential benefits to their organization in terms of diversity of thought and inclusion and I keep thinking about how much we limit potential in an organization when we don't take the whole person for who they are. That's awesome. I really think it's one of the biggest changes I've seen in 20 plus years studying careers in the workplace is how much more vocal people can be and how much more accepting and open and less stigmatized companies are about mental health. When I started out, it wouldn't have even occurred to me to talk about it or to think anybody else would talk about it. Um, which is why I'm, I'm so much more vocal now. You would think that watching Formula One racing would be more stressful for someone with anxiety, but somehow I, I'm able to do both and seeing someone else crash cars <laughs> doesn't give me uh, any anxiety. Oh, that's because your kids are still little. <laughs> <laughs> we live in New York. I don't think my daughter will ever get a driver's license. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> that's hilarious. I love the picture of your daughter coming back to New York from having uh, quarantine. I'm going to put that in air quotes, quarantine in Connecticut. I read that in your story. Um, so I, what I'd love to know is, first of all, when, when I think about um, that exposure, you know, that vulnerability, my first question is, what, what happened either in a conversation with somebody or some trigger in your mind that made you realize, I need to share this. Somebody needs to hear this. What, what happened? I know you like to talk about pivotal moments and I, I have a really specific one, which by the way, was, you know, like 15 years before I actually, you know, said something about it. But when I wrote my very first book, Getting from College to Career, it came out in 2007 and it was about all the things I wish I had known when I got my first job. And I was very fortunate to get a book deal that early. I worked so hard on it. It was, you know, absolutely, you know, my life's work at that point. And I handed in my manuscript to my editor and my editor read it and said, it's great. There's lots of really good advice, but I have to ask you a question. Have you ever made a mistake? And I said, like, what are you talking about? And of she course. said, every single story you tell about yourself is a success and how you did things right. And she said, I'm not sure that's going to resonate with people. And I remember, I think I was 28 or so when I wrote it. I can't remember exactly how old I was, maybe 30. And I said to her, well, I thought the point of writing a book was to tell everybody the right things to do and, and to be perfect. 
And she said, but if you don't show that you're vulnerable and real, nobody's going to trust you to give them advice. And it, it was sort of this shock to me that the more honest and imperfect and vulnerable I was, the more people would relate to it. And to this day, since 2007, the number one thing people say to me about the book, and it happens to me constantly, is people remember the story I tell about coming home from graduate school, not having a job, and living in my parents' bedroom, sitting under the covers in my room with frozen yogurt with rainbow sprinkles. And that that was what I did because I couldn't find a job. And they remember that, which to me is like embarrassing, and I didn't want to talk about it. And they say, oh my God, I related to that so much. And that was this huge aha moment that the job isn't to be perfect and to be, you know, to do everything right. And, you know, I think I sort of learned that in my advice that I give to people. And it was during the pandemic when just offhandedly, I was doing a session for college students. And I don't know why I just said something like, well, you know, I suffer from anxiety and the chat on the zoom blew up and they said, oh my God, I do too. Thank you so much for saying it. And and it was sort of, maybe people wouldn't have said it in a room, but because it was zoom and on chat, suddenly that's all anybody wants to talk about. And it was such a visual moment of saying, oh, I'm not the only one that has this. So those two experiences were really pivotal for me in being more vocal. Oh my gosh. I just, I got a chill when you talked about your publisher. I have to ask who was your publisher? Do you remember her name? Uh, it was Harper Collins. And at the time it was a guy uh, named Knox Houston. He acquired the Knox book Houston. and read the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And are you still in touch with him? Yeah, on and off. He's at a different publisher now, but I, I really mm-hmm. always give him credit for that moment of, you're not perfect. Why are you trying to be perfect? That's not what we want. Uh, and that was such <gasps> a surprise to me. You know, perfectionism goes hand in hand with anxiety for sure. And I still struggle with that and talk about that a lot too. But I really thought that the idea was to hide all that stuff. And the more I live and the longer I go in my career, the more I realize that's kind of the exact opposite advice. Yeah, well, and it's typical, I think, of somebody under 35. I, I really, I have these theories about, especially women, because I have experienced it as a woman, but I've seen this, I've seen men go through this too, where when we're in our 20s, um, really up until maybe early 30s, we're constantly trying to be something else. We're constantly looking at others to say, oh, I want to be like that, or I want to be more like this, and and fighting our natural instincts of who we really are. And then somehow in our 30s, we start to resign ourselves to these things. And, and we're like, well, okay, I, I'm really talkative. That's just who I am. <laughs> I mean, I can still be a good listener, but just, you know, I just have to live with this aspect of myself. And we start to kind of get a little more comfortable in our skin with who we are even if we're super confident in our teens and twenties, which very few are, we still, I don't think are super comfortable in our skin because we're not sure which skin fits us yet. Hmm. And then our thirties, we start to do that. And then um, I have to tell you, forties are absolutely transformative in a way that no other decade has been. Oh, Sarah, and- I'm well into my forties, my friend, well into <laughs> <Good>. my forties. <laughs> oh, good. Then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I really, I, I see women in our 40s transforming into not just resigning ourselves to these changes, but embracing them and saying, okay, I am talkative and it's part of my magic. It's part of what people love about spending time with me. As long as I know when people have lost interest or when I'm switching gears too many times or whatever, as long as I'm conscious of the people around me, this isn't a a debilitating dilemma of my personality. 
So I love that you say that, that in your late twenties, like 30 ish, that aha moment hit. And then it wasn't until your mid forties that you went, (laughs) I actually did something about it. And I can share, I can share more. No, you did it. You shared it in the book. You shared the vulnerability. And I think you had to take those steps of sharing vulnerability a little at a time before you were ready to really demonstrate that, that deeper level of vulnerability. As, as my friend Joel and I talked about in an episode a couple of weeks ago, you were peeling back the layers. I think there's also a confidence when you reach a certain level of success that you have a platform to say that. And I, I remember saying this to those college students, it's very hard to be a sophomore in college and talk vocally about your anxiety. It's very different to be someone with four published books and an established career, to be honest about it. And I think because I have that platform, it's even more important that I speak mm-hmm. out because I, d- I don't think it's going to ruin my career, right, to talk about it. Whereas I think, you know, in my 20s, I think I was worried that saying I have anxiety or I have perfectionism or, you know, panic attacks would frighten somebody from hiring me. I think that was the fear. And so, you know, I I think that's often not the case, but I think that fear is very real that it could be damaging. I I don't know, 15 years ago, it absolutely was real. And even now, even now. Yeah. And I I wanted to disagree with you. I wanted to be like, oh, just because you have a platform doesn't mean that that's, you know, when you can start doing that, but you're right. I, I started to switch that around thinking if you don't have a career yet or you're just in the beginnings of a career, I'm not sure it is the right time necessarily to share it broadly. Certainly not at the level that you've been able to share so that people can feel like they're not alone. And and there is, as a storytelling coach, I often see people oversharing in situations where I, I just cringe. I'm like, oh. You don't know that you can trust that person. So I hear you. Like it makes so much more sense. I just didn't want to agree with it because it's sad. I know. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast interview with Gabby Bernstein, who's kind of a, a spiritual author. And she said, you know, there's a time and a place and, and your boss is not your therapist, right? It's okay to say, I'm having a tough day. You know, I think I need to take a mental health break. I'm having some struggles. You know, I need to go seek help. That's appropriate to try to get that help from your boss or talk about it all day at work is not appropriate. So I, I do think there, there are levels to this. When I'm giving a speech at a college, I'm not asking for therapy, you know, <laughs> I'm right, sort of right, sharing exactly. the fact in context. So I think that's an important point that it's not, it's not okay to just be a free for all and, and talk about your mental health all day at work. But I'll give you an example of what I've seen that's really different. So many companies since COVID have added so many more resources. And a friend of mine, her son is in high school at a very prestigious private school. And she said, you know, we used to joke about taking a quote mental health day, which kind of meant you were going to stay home and watch the prices right. And, you know, just, you know, not go to school. Right. <laughs> she said that's now a legitimate accepted excuse that sometimes you need to take a day for your mental health. And I thought that was such a nice movement forward that even though I don't have a physical ailment, if I need a day for my mental health, that I don't have to hide it or pretend it's something else, that that is an acceptable excuse. And I thought that was just a really interesting example of of kind of where we've moved forward. And what a relief. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not everywhere, but it takes baby steps. And I, I love that. And I definitely encourage that with our two boys. When I could tell that it was that, as opposed to 
know, just not wanting to turn in their homework or forgetting to do homework. So they don't want to go to school, but it's a fine line um, sometimes. It is, it is definitely <laughs> fine line. Mine are grown, but it's, yeah, that is definitely fine line. I love that you are recognizing that, that difference because I think a lot of people are misreading the messages from people like Brene Brown about vulnerability. And she, she knows it too. I've, I've read a few of her mm. more recent things like, okay, vulnerability doesn't mean uh, verbal diarrhea all over your boss right. about your period and what's going wrong with your fertility <laughs> issues. You know, like that's not the right time. Um, so when was the time when you did that and then wanted to suck it back in like you were a vacuum? <laughs> And I, I know that I've had those moments where I overshared and then went, shoot, I can't take that back. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. I can't think of anything recently um, where I've had that kind of moment. Do you have an example? Oh, yes, <laughs> definitely. Um, I was actually with a coaching client and he was telling me about something that he was struggling with. He has um, a couple of talents that are similar to mine. And I shared a discussion I had with my husband that was really very vulnerable and uncomfortable. And I could see, and if we were face-to-face, I probably wouldn't have done it because I would have seen Mm -hmm. the micro expressions on his face shift. But because we were on Zoom, I didn't catch it in time. And I realized I had made him very uncomfortable. And I thought, okay, how are you going to guide him as, as his coach? There are times when they need to be uncomfortable. Absolutely. I will ask questions that are going to make them uncomfortable. But for me to share something, oversharing, that I could see might have might have um, created an obstacle for our work together. I really just wanted to, it, like a vacuum, I wanted to suck those words back out of the ether. And of course, I couldn't. So what I did was I said, hey, you know, I think I just overshared a little bit. Let's um, wrap this up. Here's what I want you to do for next time. And here are a couple of things that I want you to really think about. And I reviewed some of what we had talked about to break that string of thought that had kind of started. And then I said, and call me or check in if anything comes up. So I, I cut and run instead of digging myself deeper into the hole, which ha- is my tendency. So I'm, I don't know, have you... Well, what you're reminding me of, um, one of my absolute favorite podcasts and experts is a woman named Maura Ahrens-Neely, who has a show called The Anxious Achiever, and it's all about anxiety and depression in in leaders. It's a fantastic show. And we had a conversation about not just the moment, but the ruminating after that has happened. And that's where I struggle, which is I would do that and handle it. I think you handled it perfectly, but then how do you avoid going over it and over it in your mind? And my mom taught me something years ago, which I try to remember. She calls it an AFLE, another freaking learning experience, but she didn't use the word freaking. (laughs) And it's like, okay, well, I learned from that. And now I'm not going to do that again. Okay, great. Check the box, lesson learned. And I think the trick is that those things will happen. And I do this a lot in my speeches where I say something, it didn't go over well, or I didn't say it the way I wanted to, or it took too long. And I had talked with Maura on her podcast about, you know, you have to sit and say, okay, that happened here's what I've learned for it. I have to move on. And I I think that is probably one of the tools that I try to implement, which is not letting that one moment turn into weeks of rumination. Yes. That internal dialogue that just won't shut down. You are speaking my language, Lindsay. 
it's it's funny you say that too, because another um, thing that my mom said was that person is probably not thinking about it anymore. Like Amen. 99% <laughs> of the time, 99 and a half percent of the time, it's only you that is ruminating on this. And it's kind of like holding on to anger towards somebody that holding on to the, the, um, that internal dialogue of, I could have said this and I shouldn't have said that. And I didn't say this and, um, being able to recognize, and my son says this to me, he's 23. He says, um, staying angry at somebody is like eating poison and expecting them to die. Yeah. And he got that from somebody that he really didn't like. So he's like, I'm having a hard time because I love that. And yet every time I say it, it makes me think of this horrible person, (laughs) but I love that. So I have another quick story. I have a a really good friend uh, who's writing her first book and we go for walks together in Central Park. And one day we went for a walk and she was asking me all these questions about publishing because she was on her first book. And I was talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And after went for the walk, because I know her really well, I texted her and I said, oh, I'm having my social anxiety. I feel like I talked way too much and was just going on and on and on and probably telling you things you didn't want to know and was being really vocal. And like, I'm just so sorry. I just wanted you to know I'm feeling like I had verbal diarrhea. And she wrote back and said, oh my God, I've been having anxiety that I asked you too many questions and I asked for too much <laughs> and I was taking too much and it wasn't fun for you. And it was like, oh my God, this is just everybody. And to a certain extent, we all go through it. And she was worried about what she said. And I was worried about what I said. And neither of us was thinking about the other person. And I think that was such a a reminder that Mm -hmm. so much of this takes place in our own head. And I think what you're talking about, and and I admire what you did with your client, is get out of your head and just say it. And then your ability to say that difficult thing usually kind of tamps down the anxiety to just say, Oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. And the person said, it's okay. And then it's over as opposed to playing it over and over in your mind. I think it was Tim Ferriss who said like your success in life is, is going to be in proportion to your ability to say difficult things. And I found that to be really (laughs) true. Well, and you have to have that kind of relationship with somebody to be able to do that. And I, I, I hear that you have that relationship with this friend and I have this relationship with, I would say, all of my clients, because that's the kind of relationship you have to build to be effective. So um, I love that that was your moment that um, seeing your chat box blow up. I still have this image in my head, even though we've gone on to all kinds of areas connected to that moment. But I love to think about um, when you saw that chat box blow up, did you switch gears for your conversation and and dive a little bit into that to acknowledge it before you came back to your main point? Or did you just take it and absorb it and process it later? That's a good question. I'm trying to go back to that moment. I think I very lightly said, I'm seeing a lot of people in the chat because a lot of them did it by direct message or private message. I'm seeing a lot of people resonated with that. I think I had a little light touch because I never want to assume that other people's comfort talking about anxiety or other issues is, is the same as mine. Um, but there was something so visual about seeing it in the chat, whereas in an audience, maybe people would nod or kind of feel it inside, but there was something about that sort of, you know, when you're on a chat and some things just kind of explode. Oh, yes. It mm-hmm. was very visual and I've never, I've just never forgotten that. And I, I thought, you know, I, I write a lot about generations, how fortunate in some ways. And there, I think there's a lot of negatives about social media and, you know, and communicating, you know, by text and so on, but the positive 
is that sometimes it's easier to say those things over chat or in social media as opposed to saying it in person in a big auditorium. And that that is right. um, a value of that mode of communication. So I, I really valued in that moment that there was a tool that people had to say that in a way that mm-hmm. I don't think they would if we were in a classroom or a big auditorium. Completely agree. Completely agree. And the the fact that you were able to bring them some level of comfort in, in their discomfort, it just is it's kind of a magical moment for them. If for you, it's this visual moment of seeing the chat blow up. And for them, it's a visual and auditory moment that they can connect with. And I guarantee some of them will look back at this at five years, 10 years, 15, 18 years at, at their Knox moment. You know, that's your, that's their Knox Houston moment is this woman acknowledged that she's struggling with it and gave me this comfort that I'm not alone in this. And I don't mean to be ungrateful, but I wonder what would have changed for me if I had ever had somebody do that, you know, to see someone I admired or someone in a a powerful position or on a stage say that they felt what I felt. I was an RA my senior year of college. And I always go back to that moment that all I wanted to do was just tell the first years, like, it's okay. It's okay. You know, everybody's been through that. And I I think that I didn't have that um, in the same way. And I want to be that for other people. And I think that's kind of informed everything that I do, which is anything I go through, I want to make it easier for you because it doesn't have to be that hard. Right, right. And that's what that your most recent book is about. That's right. So tell me about how you brought that topic up in your most recent book. Thank you. Um, so it's called Recalculating, Navigate Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. And I didn't mean to write it. And I, I hate to say that, but it was an accident. <laughs> it was COVID. So I had been out promoting my third book, The Remix, which was about generational diversity. And I was, it was going great. I mean, everything was kind of on track and I had a fully booked speaking schedule for 2020. And in a period of about two weeks, I went from a fully booked calendar to completely empty. And I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> no, fully I know. Booked I was in the same boat. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> yes. People think, oh, not really. I'm like, oh yeah, really. And um, seriously, it was terrifying. And where I was grateful is that I've been through challenges, you know, at this point in my life, as you said, in my forties and I knew that the way out was to talk to people and see what other people were doing and kind of figure it out. And my sort of guiding principle in life is I am not the only one dealing with this. And with the pandemic, that couldn't have been more true. And while nobody knew exactly how to work their way through a pandemic, they were working on the same problem. And so I just texted and called, you know, bazillions of people and said, what are you doing? How are you getting through this? What's your plan? What do you, you know, and that got me through. And I was sitting in my apartment in New York, looking at cars on the street. And I just had this like flash and I'm terrible at naming books, terrible. It's like the last thing I do when I write a book, but this one, the title came first. I thought, oh my gosh, it's like, we're all driving our cars. And suddenly the GPS said, recalculating, like, sorry, you can't go the way you were planning to go in 2020. It's no longer an option. But I had this kind of optimism because to me, when your GPS says recalculating, it says there's another way. You can't go the way you thought but I'm going to take you a different way. And that sort of became my mantra for my own business. And then for the advice in the book, which is that in reality, we're always recalculating, right? Nothing always goes exactly how you want. Um, And when I started interviewing people and talking about it, that concept resonated so much, whether you were just starting out or had been working for 50 years and whether it was COVID related or not, the fact is I have never, ever, ever met anyone 
And tell me if you have, who says, oh, my career was just, you know, straight line, easy all the way through. Everyone was lovely. And I got every promotion I wanted. And I made the exact same. It's like, no, that's not the way. And so it was very comforting to kind of see that. And it was the very first book of the four that I've written where the entire first chapter is about mindset and well-being and mental health. That if you are not in a space to be able to feel like you can move forward, you can't follow any of the advice. The tactics don't work unless you're in a headspace to be able to do it. And that's when I started telling my story of anxiety. I love that image. You're looking out the window in New York and seeing the cars and going, oh my gosh, that's the GPS. And oh my gosh, that just- It's never happened before or since that I just had that kind of flash, but that's that's what it felt like. Like, Mm -hmm. sorry, you can't go that way anymore. It is not an option and it's not your fault but you can't control it. And that is not available to you anymore. Exactly. There's an obstacle that you're going to have to address and either find a way around it or recalculate and do something different. Oh my God. How smart you are, what kind of degree you have, how pretty you are. It doesn't matter. You cannot go that way anymore. So we're going to have to find a plan B. Um, And that, and that was the message and writing. It was great because I just got to ask people all the questions I'd always wanted to know. Mm -hmm. And um, people were really forthcoming in, in sharing their experiences. Oh, I love that. I immediately had the the sound of a voice, a woman's voice recalculating in my head because I remember when I was uh, with my family, we were driving, we were trying to leave Florence, Italy and heading back to Asiano where we were staying. And we, it's, there's a big loop around Florence and we kept missing the exit because it was <laughs> in Italian and the GPS was like recalculating over and over and over again. And I remember the anxiety and frustration with it because there's, there's nothing comfortable about, about hearing that because it means that you took a wrong turn or something's in your way, one or the other. And if you have to own it, in that case, we had to own it. Like we missed it again. We missed it again. So I, I love this concept of understanding that even if it is yours, even if you do have to own it recalculating, there's an optimism about that. And I hadn't ever thought of it that way. So thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. The other thing is that GPS never said, go back to your hotel and start over, right? It takes how far you've come. And I think that's the thing too, with people who are maybe changing careers or, you know, starting a business, you never start from scratch. You take all the stuff you've learned and done and you just reapply it. It never says, sorry, Sarah, go back to your driveway and you know, start everything from start the beginning over. again. <laughs> you always start from where you are. And I think that that's empowering too, that you know, people ask, was this a mistake? Should I not have done it? It's like, you can't do anything about that. This is where you are right now. And that's where we're going to start from. And I think, for, I think that's where kind of the anxiety almost becomes a superpower, which is, believe me, if I could worry my way out of, this, out of COVID, I would have done it, right? <laughs> right? But you couldn't. And so- Somehow, because it was so out of my control, it freed up that sort of self-criticism of like, oh my God, how did I let COVID happen to my business? It's like, well, (laughs) that is one thing where I'm like, I legitimately know it wasn't my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. It happened. And that was in some ways very freeing. And that was kind of the strangeness of the situation was everybody was in the same boat and I didn't do anything wrong and worry was not going to help. And so obviously I worried about, you know, health and well-being and and certainly trauma to everybody. But that was a really interesting experience because for somebody with anxiety, you often blame yourself. Right. Of course. Of course. I did this wrong or I should have done this or whatever. 
or, or it's because of how I grew up or, you know, blaming somebody, ex, some human externally. Oh my gosh. I love that. I did blame okay. myself a little. Cause I had said my goal for 2020 was to travel less. And my friend was like, you got your wish. <laughs> kind of like you washing put it in the universe car. and the universe delivered. You did not kind travel like, as much in 2020. Just like washing your car because you want rain. Right, 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 right. Exactly. I know how that goes. I never thought about uncertainty in that way, that um, being able to separate that this wasn't my fault, this uncertainty wasn't my fault. So what can I do now? And, And that ability to shift that mindset around that. Wow. Well, I'm still kind of puzzling over it. Yeah, I'll, I'll share more about it because it doesn't come naturally to me. I, I, you know, you and I, when we were chatting, talked about Clifton Strengths Finder and you know some other ways of, of measuring oneself. What was most notable to me was I'd interview people who had the same situation kind of on paper. So let's say somebody who um, took time out of the workplace and was now trying to re-enter. And I'd speak to one person who'd say, it's a disaster. I've been out of work for six months. Nobody's going to hire me. I have this big gap on my resume. I know it's a red flag, you know, never going to happen. And then I'd interview somebody who'd say, yeah, so I've been out of work for six months. I'm raring to go. I've got everything in my, like the same situation, but they took a completely different approach to it. And it was just so stark to me and like the pandemic, like, all right, this is what it is. It's not fun. This is really upsetting, but okay, what are we going to do? Or I can't do anything. Right. And and I'm not mm-hmm. saying one is, you know, sort of better or worse. I think people react the way they react, but it, it just was so stark to me that you have a choice how you handle a situation. Even if it's not what you wanted, you have a choice of how you handle it. And that was very powerful to me when I saw two people in very similar situations take mm-hmm. completely different approaches that were entirely in their mindset and had nothing to do with the facts on paper. Right. Well, it's the Viktor Frankl quote, right? That there's a space between yeah. stimulant and response and in between is your choice. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. When you, um, you're, you're looking at these two different ways of processing the information and knowing that that person who is coming across as everything sucks and um, I can't do anything, I can't fix this, you know that that person especially needs that first chapter of your book. You have to have that foundational mental and emotional well-being. And I, I would love to highlight that a little bit. There's a difference between mental health and emotional health. Mm-hmm. And emotional health is really more the foundation of all health, which is do you have the the relationships, the support you need in relationships to feel loved and supported? And can you give love and support? So tell us a little bit about that first chapter and how you approach that, please. So I called it mindset, um, but you're right. It goes hand in hand with um, sort of the community aspect, I think, uh, of the book, which is you know, my favorite navigation tool is Waze because it's crowdsourced, right? It's not just you relying on a computer. It's everybody is contributing to tell you where the traffic is and what to avoid. So I think there's there's so many metaphors. Um, but that actually, as you're saying it, and I had never kind of articulated this, I think that's what prompted me to talk about my own anxiety because I think there are moments when you absolutely need a professional. I mean, there are times where I could have all the friends in the world, but I needed a therapist to help me through some of those darker times and to give me the tools that I needed. And I think that's what made me talk about it. 
because I don't want to say, well, if you just call your friends, everything will be fine, right? Or, or lift yourself up by your bootstraps. I don't think that's good advice. So I think that's probably what prompted me to share that sometimes you have to bring in a professional who knows how to deal with burnout um, or, you know, depression and, and some of the, the more serious elements of mental health. But I, I think there's a sense that we should be able to just figure it out. And the reality is sometimes you can't, and I couldn't, you know, I needed medication to get me out of certain things and it has changed my life tremendously. But there was a point where I just, I had reached the end of pulling myself up by my bootstraps and I needed something bigger. Um, on the community piece though, some of the people that I admired the most were the people who, when they got laid off, instead of retreating in embarrassment or shame or fear, immediately reached out to as many people as possible and said, I got laid off, I need some help. Or there was one group who all got laid off from the same company and they started a text chain to support each other. They're sort of, are you the kind of person who sort of retreats and doesn't want to talk about it? Or do you double down on building community? And again, it's not always easy, but the people who were willing to reach out and ask for help I think did a lot better in the long run than people who retreated. Right. I totally agree. And by retreat, you're, you're talking more of an extreme, I would assume, because I know some people they're, they're just introverts. It's not necessarily that they don't want to be around people. They just retreat so fully into themselves that they don't even see, first of all, the, the impact of that on the people around them, because they're so, uh, self-absorbed about this fear and and frustration that they don't even see that that is showing up in a way that is actually hurting their relationships. And, well, and, me, and an introvert might reach out to one or two people and that could be exactly. feeling they might need their own time. I'm not saying you have to reach out to a hundred people, exactly. but it was the idea that you didn't have to do it alone. I yes. Think. Whether that's one special person or 10 people, it's the idea of reaching out as mm-hmm. opposed to retreating it. And by the way, even if you don't struggle with mental health issues, the past two and a half years have been just impossible for anybody. Burnout, languishing, you know, all those feelings are so mm-hmm. real and justified. And you can continue to move forward in baby steps to mm-hmm. get out of it if you want to, but you have to make that choice. Right. And I think that's the distinction between emotional health and mental health. Emotional health is really about that aspect of being able to connect with others versus mental health, which is when you actually are in a clinical depression and you are suffering in in a way that you you have to have professional help in that. So I love that you said that because that definitely qualifies that distinction. So as we kind of come full circle and you think about your story and how you were able to not only persevere and be resilient but also the way that you've been able to help others beside Knox Houston, because that is a name that I will never forget. <laughs> it's a great name. A I know. He's a great name. name. Um, is there somebody else that when you think about, and, and I'm saying this because I, many times when something goes wrong, it's the person that you would least expect or that you wouldn't expect to be the person that, that is the kind of the light that, um, that's the person that shows up for you. And as an example, when you're when there's a diagnosis or something, many times people who are closest to you can't deal with that grief. And so the people that you thought would show up for you don't, but these people that you are virtual strangers or people you just didn't know you were that close to, they're the ones that show up for you. So ha- do you have a story like that to share? 
I do. And it's not about me. So it popped into my head when you said that, because it's like a famous story in my family. Um, Many, 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 many years ago, I was in high school. My grandfather passed away, my mother's father. And at the time, my aunt, who was unmarried and divorced and and used to date all the time. She was dating a guy named Les. That's all I remember. L-E-S, Les. And everything was chaos. My grandfather had died. We were trying to plan the shiva. And this and that and everything, you know, and, and the obituary and this, and then there were kids running around. It was just like chaos, chaos and nobody knew what they were doing. And, you know, just death, it's hard and whatever. And I remember the conversation was like, oh my God, we forgot to order the soda. And Les would say, oh, I took care of that. And then we'd say, somebody's got to pick up so-and-so at the airport. And they'd say, oh, Les is on the way. And this person, <laughs> like, I don't even know if he's real. He just kind of helped in the areas where he needed, he wasn't in the family. He was the temporary boyfriend of my aunt. And I just remember like, I want to be a less for other people where they're having a hard time. And I can just, you know, I had a friend who had COVID and, you know, I said, do you need anything? She said, would you go to the store and just get me ginger ale and crackers? And I was like, absolutely. And I just thought, I want to be less. So I always think about that. Those little (laughs) things that are not make or break. He just he arranged the chairs, you know, he just took care of it. And sometimes it's just that person who does that little thing that helps. And and I think you're right. Sometimes they just kind of magically show up, but you know, where I thought you were going was just who's made the biggest difference. And I think having a good therapist has changed my life. I mean, I have a really great therapist who knows me and, you know, knows when I'm lying to myself and knows kind of my habits and so on. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's really powerful, but I'm going to give a shout out to Les, whoever he is, wherever he is, if he's a real person, <laughs> thank you, Les. I aspire to be more like you. And actually that's a good point um, on the introvert piece. And, and just when people are struggling to me, one of the most valuable things you can do is help somebody else. So if you feel like I can't do anything for myself, I can't do anything, I can't do anything, go help somebody else, even something really, really, really small. I think that gets you out of your own rut. Um, And one of the things that just stuck with me when I was researching, recalculating is Google had announced that in March and April of 2020, one of the top searches on Google was the generic phrase, how can I help? It's chaos Mm -hmm. is going on in the world. And people went to Google Mm -hmm. and just said, how can I help? And I think that is just a human instinct that when you're struggling, sometimes helping somebody else is easier than helping yourself. So I've tried to, to keep that in mind. Mm, I love that. And that's a wonderful place to wrap this up. Really, if I could encourage anyone that's listening to this to step up for somebody else, I, it is the, the magic bullet when it comes to being able to help yourself is reaching out to somebody else. And I mean something really specific, like one of my friends suddenly lost her mother. It was just a, a massive heart attack. And the first thing was people making meals for that family. Don't make a meal for somebody who's having trouble getting out or just recently had something, had a baby or, um, and one of the things that I think is so important in this is saying, I want to do this for you. Um, I, I'm going to the grocery store. What can I pick up for you? Because just the, the generic, how can I help? Most of us don't accept help easily. 
Or but if somebody on them to think right, of something you can do, right? right I think was it Cheryl exactly. Sandberg in her book about her husband dying said, mm-hmm. "Don't ask me if I want food. Ask me what kind of cheese to put on the burger." She was exactly. like, "Tell me you're on the way, and just ask me for the details. Exactly. But don't ask me what I want because I can't answer it." I thought that was exactly really memorable. exactly. And Les just did what needed to be done. He didn't Les. ask, "Oh, can I help? Can I do this?" It was. Oh, the, the chairs need arranging, so I'm going to arrange them. I'll never and forget that. And by the that's way, amazing. nobody else in my family remembers Les. I have this magical memory of Les. And everyone's like, <laughs> who are you talking about? Even my aunt who dated him. So I don't know if oh I invented Les, but if he's no. out there. No, you didn't invent him. It, maybe his <laughs> name wasn't Les, but nobody, you didn't invent him. You knew that there was somebody behind the scenes that may have even been an introvert that was just doing what needed to be done in between. he was. That's a good point. Oh, I love that. I love that. Lindsay, this has been such a pleasure. I know I'm looking forward to reading your books. I will be sending them as gifts to people because I have um, quite a few people on my list that I know will find great value, especially in the recalculating one. Um, So thank you for all you're doing to share your experiences and bring comfort and compassion to others. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me on the show. It was a great, unexpected conversation. And I I hope people found it valuable. I know they will. Um, For our listeners, don't rush to grab a pen. I promise that we will have the links to Lindsay's page, website, and to connect with her on LinkedIn in the blog posts and show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. Thank you.